What park is that? Is that in Chicago? No, it's in Montreal. Because I was living in Montreal when the Pokemon craze began. This is Daisy Charles. She's an art historian studying and working at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. It's called Cabot Square. Um, and it was, and I think it was traditionally, I'm not, I can't remember the exact history of the square, but it was a lot of indigenous people who, were, who, who, who the homeless people who were living there. What's that park usually like? So it actually just underwent a big renovation. Um, it used to be, it's quite small and it's quite central, but it used to be very overgrown. And it was a place where homeless people would sleep and hang out. And they did this big renovation where they took out all of the bushes and trees so there's nowhere to hide um, and paved it and made it into this pedestrian type space. And they got rid of the benches that people could sleep on and kind of cleaned it up in a way to discourage people from hanging out there. But then no one hung out there, no one went. It was kind of dead feeling, which was why it was sort of ripe for this event and this usage. It was between where I was working and my boyfriend's house. So when when I was working there with him, we would walk past it every day, like to work on on the way back. But so also like seeing, starting to see people congregate there was different. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like it went from being empty and then it kind of like gradually happened. It was just one night I was walking home from work and it was absolutely packed with people. So there were so many people in the square that they couldn't even fit in the square and they were sort of spilling out onto the street and across the street from it. And I couldn't even walk down the sidewalk to get home. I had to walk in the middle of the road to, to get through that space because there were so many people. And they were kind of, they were cordoned off too because there was a children's hospital across the street. That's now, um, it was at that, it, it, clo- it had closed, but it was kind of this empty space. So they were watching it to make sure no one went and occupied it. So there were police and they'd kind of cordoned off the spaces where people could play Pokemon. And they were kind of within like police, what's the word, police tape. What's funny about it is that we expect people to be on their phones. I'm thinking about commuting into school every day. Everyone's on their phone. Everyone's got their face down. And, but that feels more normal. But it's when it's in a park in the summer and there are people who are obviously together. That's why it's so creepy. I'm Brian Fabry Dorsum, and this is Character Creator, a monthly podcast about video game characters and the people who create them. This month, gotcha. In this episode, we'll hear two stories about one of the world's most popular video games, Pokemon. Level one, the good ship Niantic. In the summer of 2016, a company called Niantic paired with Nintendo to release a new Pokemon game called Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go builds on the original concept of Pokemon from 1996, which is catching these tiny, fantastical creatures with different powers, training them, and then battling them against other players. The original games were played on Game Boy, a handheld system with a tiny screen. They were role-playing games. The gamer would play as a character named Ash Ketchum and run around the digital world catching Pokemon and training them. But the exciting thing about Pokemon Go is that you don't have to do this in your living room or even on an old Game Boy. You can play Pokemon Go right on your phone, anywhere. But that's not all. Pokemon Go utilizes something called augmented reality technology. The game accesses your phone's camera and creates a digital version of your physical surroundings on the screen. If I'm walking down the street outside my apartment, I see my street on my phone, but with one important addition, Pokemon. By using AR, Pokemon Go merges the physical and digital worlds. If I hold my phone up in front of me, not only do I see my street and my apartment building, I see Pokemon just like squirrels or birds living in that same space. So when Daisy saw a crowd of people in Cabot Square, they were all there to catch Pokemon. I think it's the fact that they were so close to each other and obviously partaking in some kind of mutual experience, but not talking to each other. That's what was so weird about it, that they were not communicating Uh, and I assumed that they were communicating through the game that they were sort of playing each other but now I know that's not the case really it was also because it was night time it was dark when I walked through 
and everyone was on their phones, so the park was kind of glowing. And I assumed from far away when I started walking towards there, I assumed, oh, there's a concert or something, or there's some kind of event taking place. That's why all these people are there. And then when I got closer, it was really quiet because no one was talking to each other and there wasn't music, there was no entertainment. So the entertainment was just happening through their phones. So that was what was unnerving about it, the quietness too. Daisy was so fascinated by all this that she wrote a paper about it. Not just about how unnerving it is to see a park full of people staring at their phones in the dark, but about the ways in which Pokemon Go is actually changing our relationship to public space. This, this, this kind of idea of a, collect, like a collective experience that's happening. Um, I know that when people first started reading newspapers, it was kind of regarded in the same way. Everyone on the train would be reading the same newspaper, not talking to each other partaking in this shared experience that was consistent, but not um, communal. Um, but there's something about the phone and the way that it, it, it controls you in a, in a way that's much more kind of in the moment. It can move you in a way that something like a newspaper can't. A newspaper can tell you, oh, go to there's going to be a speech by so-and-so at this time, you know, everyone should go. But a phone will actually move you somewhere without you even necessarily knowing why you're going there. And it has this, and it kind of alerts us to this potential of augmented reality technology to, to move large groups of people um, into certain spaces. And it's this, and, and I think that's also what unnerved me the most about seeing these people in the spaces, that I initially didn't know why they were all there. But also what you're just talking about made me realize that even in this conversation, we're kind of moving fluidly between the digital space and the physical space. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about it's moving you somewhere that you don't understand, there's two somewheres. Within the game, it's moving you to a place that you do understand. Mm-hmm. But in the physical world, you might not understand what this place is. Um, and that's really interesting to me, is it's creating a, a, an actual kind of parallel universe um, that's mapped right on top of ours, obviously. That's the whole idea. But that's something I want to talk about as well, which is how, I don't know, the potential for our interaction with public space mm-hmm. is not really fulfilled, you know, almost in any way by going to these various locations in the world. Yeah, and there's this there's this suggestion that it will be. There's a suggestion that, oh, if you play Pokemon to go to a park, you're going to enjoy the park, um, which might be true. But it's this separation between the virtual world and the real world that are mapped onto each other, like you say, in this um, kind of almost like one-to-one relationship that doesn't really follow through. But with Pokemon, if people, if enough people go to a public space, like in Cabot Square, if enough people go to occupy this virtual space, it actually has an effect on the real space. And it also alerts us to this potential of um, simply existing in the virtual space and kind of totally disregarding the public space, which is something that happened, for example, when um, people started trespassing on public property playing the game. There was a Pokemon in in someone's garden, so someone jumped the fence and went in there because they have no regard for the real space. They only are occupying the virtual space. In Niantic's press releases for Pokemon Go, they use the language of adventure and exploration. But as Daisy describes it, that wasn't really what was happening. Players weren't really moving through physical space to enjoy that space. They were moving through it to catch Pokemon. She writes, quote, Rather than restoring meaning to a place, Pokemon Go eludes the existing meaning by adding a new virtual meaning, designating existing public and private spaces as play spaces that can override or call into question the prior validity and purpose of that space, end quote. In other words, players aren't really experiencing the physical world around them so much as using it to move through the digital world. Daisy writes, quote, While some AR mobile games do encourage the player to wander the city with no intended goal, Pokemon Go encourages the player to move quickly from place to place and to occupy some places for extended periods of time. The idea of drifting is absent as all movement is goal-oriented, and although the player may interact with the city in unusual and new ways, they're being driven by the commercial desires of the game's developer Niantic." It's been reported from a few different sources that Pokemon seem to congregate in more affluent neighborhoods. 
Daisy stops short of suggesting that Niantic, which was originally created by Google, is intentionally putting Pokemon in places it wants gamers to spend money, but if there aren't explicit capitalistic motivations behind the creation of the game's digital map, there are certainly capitalistic consequences. I'm not intending to suggest that Pokemon is causing gentrification, but it's just, um, it shows how augmented reality can create this value for spaces in a virtual world that affects the real world and can um, increase the success of a space, right? So, like, if a, if a city um, gives more, you know, money to one neighborhood than another, then property prices are going to improve there, businesses are going to improve there, it's going to be a nicer neighborhood, and it's going to increase this inequality between poor neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods. The same thing could happen with this kind of technology and with a you know a more successful and um, longer version of this game is that the more people that go to occupy a space in the virtual world, the better things are going to be for, for, for the real world there. Like the businesses are going to benefit from this. Um, people, people might actually start to value that space for, um, for its real qualities outside of the game, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? People are going to say, oh, look, more people are going to a parks. And then they actually came back to the park when they weren't playing the game because they realized they liked it, which is fine, but not if this is happening in neighborhoods and in public spaces that are already highly valued because it's just going to increase this discrepancy between these have neighborhoods and these have not neighborhoods. There was some cafe in Montreal that I remember I walked past where they said that if you were over a certain number of points in the game, you'd get a free coffee. So we value, we value um, ability in these games in the real world, even though it's a virtual game, right? So like people might say, oh, well, you know, you're playing this game, but it's just in the game, but it's not. Like this, the, uh, this kind, of, kind of privilege within the game flips right back into the real world where it came from in the first place. So it's this cyclical relationship that we have to just remember to associate them. And in fact, some small business owners are actually catching on. In Pokemon, you could buy lures, which will bring Pokemon to you. So this is another example of something you can buy to advance in the game. Um, this is It's kind of like a, like a shortcut, right? Because if you have the time um, and you don't want to spend any money, you could travel all over the city and collect them. But if you want to advance in the game and do it quickly and easily, you can buy these lures and it will bring Pokemon to you. So what um, what this guy did, he, I don't know, I can't remember his name. His name is Tom Latanzio. You can actually look this up. He owned an Italian restaurant in, uh, in New York and he figured that if he brought Pokemon to his restaurant, then people would follow and then they would buy his pizza. And they did. So he bought 10 lures, loads of Pokemon came, people came to play Pokemon there, hung out for ages, bought food, and his business went up and he kind of did better than he ever he ever had before. And so this alerts us to this um, potential for uh, kind of like a virtual uh, economy existing on top of a real one where we can um, create this virtual value for a space that will then uh, inform inform how we spend our money in the real world. It's almost just like a kind of more intense version of cafes that have Wi-Fi. We'll go there to use Wi-Fi and work or talk or study or whatever, and then we'll buy a coffee. And cafes will advertise outside, you know, we have Wi-Fi that you can use. It's interesting to think about what other kind of things other than Pokemon could be set up to occupy virtual space that would make us want to, to occupy the real space underneath it. Underneath it, that's mm. a really horrible. We're in the we're in the it. underworld. <laughs> but in order to talk more about all of this, it's important to know how Niantic created Pokemon Go's digital world. So they chose the locations of where Pokemon would be, or where the where the Pokestops and Poke Gyms would be, which is where the Pokemon congregate, and um, based on the locations of portals in Ingress. In 2012, Niantic released a game called Ingress. Ingress was an AR game, much like Pokemon Go. In fact, the structure of Pokemon Go was based directly on the structure of Ingress. Using similar technology, Ingress created a digital version of the physical world and invited players to move through both worlds at once. I won't get into all the details of the game's story, but what you need to know is that the game centered around significant locations, called portals. And this is where things get interesting. So they based the locations of Pokemon off the locations that they had in Ingress. And the locations in Ingress, which um, 
chosen um, from locations that were on the historical marker database. It's worth pausing here to talk about what the historical marker database is and how it informed the development of both Ingress and, consequently, Pokemon Go. The historical marker database is basically what it sounds like. It's an online database of the locations and content of historical markers all over the country. What constitutes a historical marker? Well, it seems pretty loose. The database is a compilation of crowdsourced photographs of different kinds of historical markers. You can add to it, actually. The next time you see a plaque marking a historical event, take a picture and send it to them. The site is constantly updating with new locations. In 2012, Niantic bought the map created by this database and used it to create the map of portals in Ingress. But it didn't end there. So at some point in Ingress, they allowed players to uh, nominate new locations for portals. Um, so these, those were added to the historical market database locations. Um, so some of the locations that Pokemon occupy in the game were chosen by Ingress players and some of them were chosen by historical enthusiasts. The trouble with this is that Ingress players were mostly affluent, mostly male, and mostly white. So it was also the kind of spaces that they wanted to wanted to spend time in. They're not going to put a neighborhood that they don't usually go to, put a portal there. It's going to be convenient for them. And the volunteers who created the historical marker database? Old white men who were probably retired. And this is all happening outside of the awareness of the player. It took me quite a while to figure out how exactly the locations of Pokemon were chosen. And I decided to take the time to do that. For most people, it would just seem like this sort of natural, it, it would seem natural perhaps, if you were choosing not to consider how it happened, which almost makes it worse that it's actually mapping these existing inequalities. These layers of whiteness that are woven into the digital world of Pokemon Go, they have consequences. Uh, I'm Omari Akil, and I'm a, a writer and a board game designer. The day after Pokemon Go was released, Omari published an article about his experience playing the game. When I spoke with him about the history of whiteness that informed the game's creation, Omari said he felt it. There was some evidence of, of that. Um, and at least publicized um, by black players who were saying, you know, there aren't a lot of these things in my neighborhoods. Um, there aren't a lot of Pokestops, you know, so yeah, there may have potentially been, um, you know, a, a component of the game and sort of what you're describing as this, this whiteness that sort of created it through crowdsourcing um, may have potentially been asking the black players to go to places that they may not have normally been. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and one, of, one of those things that is just, um, when you hear it, it makes perfect sense, um, but it's still really difficult to, to hear. Pokemon Go was asking Omari and other black gamers to walk out into public space. And even though that might seem like a simple thing, the week that Pokemon Go was released was an awful reminder of just how dangerous that simple act can be. So that was, um, and, and I think for myself, just a really difficult moment. Um, that was the same week um, that Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, they were both killed by police officers. Um, and, you know, varying circumstances, but both seeming very unjustified. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was something that hit me way harder than I thought it would. Um, and, I, and I think that's a big reason why the article, you know, was, was kind of written the way it was, is that, you know, it was this very unexpected reaction that I had, a very strong and very angry sort of reaction to what was going on. Um, and, and that kind of set the stage for, for the article. Yeah, can you, can you talk about that feeling a little bit? Because I think, you know, in, in the white community, there are feelings of like shock and, 
and horror and, and sadness as well. But I imagine that for folks in the black community, the feelings were very different. It is very different feelings. Um, and it, you know, a part of it comes from just, you know, for, for myself as a black man being very aware of this possibility, you know, constantly throughout your life and then seeing it and, and then on top of kind of, you know, hearing it for yourself or just knowing that these things are happening and then being in the news when they, when they are kind of publicized in the way that they are and it becomes so visible, I think uh, an entire, an entirely different reaction comes out. Um, and it's something that, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's just really intense. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually pretty hard to describe. And there's also a, a, a layer of disappointment um, when it becomes so public and you start seeing such dismissive response to it. Um, and, and so it's that, that kind of intensity and, and anger around, you know, just having to deal with it in general. And then this disappointment, you know, because... It, it, it almost is being ignored. But when Pokemon Go was released, Omari wasn't thinking about all of that. He was just really excited to play because Omari has been a Pokemon fan from the beginning. I was pretty hardcore. I was able to get Pokemon Red, so I was like from the very beginning of the Pokemon series, a huge fan. Yeah, pretty much played through, you know, the first few iterations of the game. Um, I think in high school or like the beginning of high school, I started playing the play trading card game. Uh, and then eventually, I think getting closer to when I was about to go to college is when I sort of finally dropped out of the Pokemon world for a little while, but eventually came back. And Pokemon Go was, I guess, one of the things that brought me back. There's, there's this, you know, sort of pipe dream that I think all... Pokemon Go fan or Pokemon fans um, had just from the beginning of the series. It's like, when do I get to, you know, sort of kind of be able to do this on my own? And, you know, there were there were little snippets of that kind of throughout the, the game's lifespan. You had games like um, uh, Pokemon Snap where you were taking pictures of them. And so you got to witness Pokemon in a different sort of environment, like in their natural habitat, um, for lack of a better term. And, you know, I think that excited Pokemon fans. And then you had um, games like Pokemon Stadium that later came out where you got to fight them and actually, you know, sort of get to see more of the action that you had to imagine in the you know, sort of regular Pokemon games. Um, so you got all these tastes of what it was like um, to sort of be in that world and, you know, really get to see more about, you know, what the original games was, was trying to sort of show you. Um, and that, I think, Pokemon Go really, you know, the original trailers for it really sold this idea that you were going to be out in the world doing the thing that you have been doing on handhelds, you know, for, I think it was like 15, 16 years. Um, and, and that, that was exciting. It's like, finally, I get to do exactly what I've been thinking about doing for all these years. And once the day came and Omari finally got to play it, he was thrilled. I mean, initially it was fantastic. Um, and then it was pretty early because I was playing before work. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go and try it out for a few minutes just to see how it is. And, and initially it was great. Um, yeah, the first you know few times I was able to find and catch a Pokemon because they weren't even very, they weren't even popping up very frequently, like in my neighborhood. Um, and it was exciting. It was, it was, it was really, really fun. And, and I could see how much potential the game had, like almost immediately. But that feeling, Omari writes, lasted about five minutes. 
it it was relatively short um yeah i was i wasn't out there too long and and also i was like er i have to go to work um so i was juggling that but then it was you know there were a few moments and the where the feeling was it, it just became very uncomfortable in like a few situations um and then almost instantly you know i got that that feeling that oh this is not exactly what i <laughs> had in mind when i envisioned myself playing this game like these weren't the feelings that i was anticipating and that was was a little bit heartbreaking um and i think it wasn't until you know i went back inside and like probably scrolled through facebook and read you know some more about what was going on in the world and just made that connection and just felt really awful um and then started to write almost immediately omari's article went up later that day it was called warning pokemon go is a death sentence if you're a black man This is something that Daisy writes about as well. This awareness of your body in public space that's so different depending on depending on who you are and this game just assumes that you have a a privileged body that can move through space easily and in the way that you want to which isn't the case for a lot of the people that that would that would play the game or that would for this reason be discouraged from playing the game. Yeah. It yeah. also presumes that you're able bodied thinking about this idea of going outside and it being a good thing to go outside also just being able to go outside. And it also is discouraging therefore because it's discouraging these people from playing the game because they're not going to feel comfortable doing it. They're or not safe doing it. Or safe doing it or they'll have to travel further. Physically it's going to be inconvenient more inconvenient to 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 do so because you're going to have to go further to find Pokémon because they're not going to be located in your neighborhood because your neighborhood wasn't put on the historical mar marker database because it doesn't have this history associated with it. This history that 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 um, white culture values. This is this assumption that um, that white history is everyone's history? Daisy referenced Amari's piece in her own writing, and she makes an important point about it. And he and and he writes about this happening. Not even he hasn't even gone to another neighborhood. He's in his own neighborhood, and it's this um, perception of him just sort of hanging out on his phone. You know, loitering is what it would be described as if it's done by a young black man in a white neighborhood. It's just this different perception of who's allowed to occupy public space and who's allowed to perform in certain ways in public space um, that is so much more generous um, to privileged bodies. I spoke with Amari about this. Uh, there, I think part of it is that the game asks you to occupy two spaces at the same time, right? There's the physical space uh, of the world, and then there's the digital space that the game is creating. And the game is very aware of the digital space. Um, it knows it very well because uh, it created it. But it seems much less fluent in the physical space that it's asking its players to occupy. Because that physical space has cultural and political and, and historical significances that the digital space just doesn't. So you know, putting your avatar into this digital world is one thing, but in order to do that, you have to actually put your own body into this physical space, which can be, like you're saying, you know, very, very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a almost perfect explanation. Um, there is a, that duality of, of, of spaces, um, and that's incredibly difficult to navigate especially as a as a game designer and and that's probably one of the challenges that ar games are going to continue to face niantic is at the forefront of ar gaming in 2018 they're not only planning a re-release of ingress they're also developing an ar harry potter game called wizards unite and if niantic is going to be driving us into a new future of ar gaming it's important to know who Niantic are and where they're coming from. The story of the company's name may sound trivial, but held up against some of the issues that their games are bringing up, it actually says a lot about the company's blind spots. Niantic, the company, is named after a ship 
that first sailed to the west coast of the States um, during the gold rush. And the, so the ship, it's like a metaphor for, for exploration um, and uh, for being a pioneer for, for colonization, really. And the, what the ship was named after was actually a, an American Indian tribe. So these like white explorers, they stole this name for their ship and then um, went and colonized this space on the west coast. And then that's what Niantic t- took there took their name from, which is just so fitting for what's happening with, with Pokemon Go. Um, this total disregard for, uh, for what's already happening in a space. I mentioned all this to Amari. Yeah, that's a, that's a rough one. Um, <laughs> I, 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 that's, all, that's almost untouchable. So how do companies like Niantic move forward? I talked to Amari about this. You know, a company like Niantic and, and knowing, you know, kind of historically, who was playing Ingress, um, you know, they had tools available to them, even if they didn't have a lot of, you know, people of color in the development of the game. Had they potentially, you know, put a group of, you know, 20 African-American people in a focus group and said, hey, what do you think about this? They might have gotten some decent feedback, like, oh, that's that's not exactly... (laughs) something I, I, I want to be doing on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's kind of what my hope is, that it just, you know, there is a, a thought, a moment in the development of the game where the question is asked, you know, how are different people going to view this? You know, a part of me feels like the companies who are developing games i mean their their primary goal is to make a game that's fun to play um and you know i think on top of that yeah we definitely i, I definitely feel that it's important to know what fun to play means <laughs> for different people in different contexts but you know the and the game does sort of in a very low-key way, it's constantly remind you to just be aware. Um, and I think that, you know, that's that's something that is not a foreign idea to most Black Americans. Um, that heightened level of awareness is kind of a constant thing. So, you know, it's just a matter of saying, hey, this game doesn't, it doesn't make that go away. I think the idea, of course, is to like turn the physical world into this kind of fantasy world. This, you know, that that you were talking about, getting excited about, um, and that's certainly going to be the case with Harry Potter. But um, that kind of the access to that fantasy uh, is really tempered by, um, you know, a lot of things that I, it, it seems like. Um, weren't considered you know like only only certain people have have full access to that fantasy yeah and 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 that's the absolute truth um and so you know if as long as we can just acknowledge that as the truth um exactly what you're describing that full access is limited to a small group and with Pokemon, it's got this kind of harmless feeling to it because of the way that the game, because the game is based off this uh, nostalgia for nostalgia for the game itself. So because a lot of millennials played Pokemon Go with the cards when we were kids. Um, and so we're nostalgic for the game and it has this kind of like built in um, familiarity and kind of uh, harmlessness that because because it was something from our childhood. So this nostalgia makes it feel like it couldn't be doing anything wrong. And I think it's also... Um, because it's just just a game, right? That's what people are going to say. That's what people. That's why people won't take this seriously necessarily because of this kind of cuddly face. Yeah, Pikachu. Pikachu can't. Pikachu wouldn't gentrify a neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. I just compared the stats for the racial, the breakdown of racial demographics in the United States um, against the breakdown of racial demographics of gamers in the country. And I mean, it's, it's, it's identical, you know, yeah. give or take a percentage point here or there, you know, it's, uh, and, and half of Americans are playing video games, you know, it's 160 million people. Mm. 
um, it's a perfect sample size, you know? It's like, exactly. Uh, so it seems strange. I mean, I guess it doesn't seem strange. That's that would that's a bit optimistic. But I guess disappointing is the word we keep coming back to. That you know you can look at the state of the world and and still not be able to imagine that um, the state of gaming would be similar. You know, or that those worlds aren't the same world. Yeah, I mean that's that's the really harsh reality is that you know they're they're almost perfect representations um and as as much as we sort of dream of them not to be to be havens you know where our social uh, issues are not present but they are and they and it's going to be really it's going to be just as hard to get away from that in video games Level two, what happened to Ian Garvey? Ian Garvey grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, right on the banks of the Delaware River, in a small town called New Hope. In the 1960s, New Hope was a hippie town, and when Ian lived there in the late 90s, you could still see the remnants. The main street was filled with head shops and record stores and vintage boutiques, and though the Starbuckses and the housing developments and the New York Weekenders were starting to change things a bit, New Hope's old small-town charm was still there. Ian's middle school was small, too. And even though it was a public school, Ian's 8th grade class had less than 100 kids in it. It was the kind of school where everyone knew everyone else. They'd all grown up together. But even in a school that small, some kids stood out more than others. And Ian was one of those kids. At New Hope Solbury Middle School, Ian Garvey was famous. Ian was famous for three reasons. One, he was brilliant, really brilliant. Anyone who took a class with Ian could see that. It seemed like no matter what the subject was, Ian knew it front to back. He always had the right answers, he always got the best test scores, and he always had his homework done on time. Even though Ian was quiet, reserved, and soft-spoken, it was hard to miss a kid like that. The second reason that Ian was famous was that Ian's dad was famous too. In the 1970s, Ian's dad played bass in a hugely influential British punk band. Stories from his dad's glory days in the Manchester punk scene were whispered through the halls between classes, stories that probably weren't true, but spread regardless. Stories that began to build a mythos not just around his father, but around Ian as well. Now, full disclosure, I know these things about Ian, because I know Ian. Ian and I grew up right across the street from each other. I went to Ian's middle school. I was in Ian's classes. I saw Ian's dad mowing the lawn on the weekends. But the third reason that Ian was famous at New Hope Silbury Middle School was the same reason that he was famous all over the world. And that's because in the year 2000, at age 13, Ian Garvey became the United States champion of Pokemon. Now, I hadn't spoken to Ian in 15 years, so before I reached out to him, I did what any normal person would do. I googled him. When you type Ian Garvey Pokemon into a Google search, two things come up right away. The first is a television interview that Ian did in 2000 between the U.S. Championships and the World Championships. Well, Pokemon has swept the world. The craze started with just a simple game. Every game has to have a winner. Now a boy from Solbury Township is about to compete to become the world's best Pokemon player. He's already conquered America. Submitted for your approval, one Ian Garvey, 13 years old, straight-A student, science and math whiz, and... I'm the United States Pokemon Master. The interview took place in Ian's home right across the street from mine. They've got him dressed in a Pokemon hat and a t-shirt that reads USA Champion Pokemon 2000. Ian seems shy and nervous, unaccustomed to all the attention he's getting. I won the New York City one, and all four kids from all places around the United States went to Seattle to compete in the United States Championships, mm -hmm. and I won that. They talk to Ian's mother as well as his father loads bags into a limousine. 
The whole thing feels very contrived, exactly like a local news station trying to figure out what to make of a new craze that it doesn't fully understand. Nintendo isn't saying what the prize for a first will be, but Ian isn't asking too many questions. He knows when it's time to just get in the limo and go. In Solbury Township, Gerald Colpan, Fox News. Go get him. But there's a whole subset of people who knew just what to make of Ian's success. People like Ian. People who did, and still do, care a lot about Pokemon. Which brings me to the second thing that comes up when you search for Ian's name. It's a message board from the site Game FAQs, which asks a question that no one seems to have an answer to. What happened to Ian Garvey? Now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, my name is Ian Garvey. I've been playing Pokemon for the past 18 years now. It turns out... Ian was home for the holidays, just like me. So I took my microphone, walked across the street, and knocked on his door. Yeah, is that comfortable for you? Does that work? Yeah. In perfect middle school boy fashion, we're sitting down in the basement of his parents' house. His dad makes sure we've got everything we need, asks if we're certain we don't want tea or something, and tells us to call upstairs if we change our minds. We're surrounded by his dad's old guitars and concert posters from the 60s. Ian is wearing a Pokemon shirt. Did you um, start playing uh, the Game Boy games like, with like Pokemon Red and Blue? Yeah, it was pretty much the Game Boy games. Um, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. I, we, we, I was subscribed to Nintendo Power at the time, and um, we... I had gotten like promotional materials, a promotional VHS tape about Pokemon, and I remember thinking how I was like not interested in this at all because I wasn't really into RPGs. I was mostly into platforming games like Mario and Sonic. Um, so I, it came out in September of that year, and I didn't think to ask for it for Christmas because I always ask for video games for Christmas. So Christmas, I didn't get that game. I didn't want it. And then I came back to school in January, and everybody was playing it. And I was like, I seem to have missed out on this trend that was growing. And luckily, my birthday is a couple weeks after Christmas. So I always use that as a as a means to get what I didn't get for Christmas. Um, so I got, I asked for that game, and and I, I started playing it, and, and then I was able to participate in, in what had become a massive trend in, in middle school. And uh, just from there, it became... One of my, obviously my favorite game of all time, but a huge lifelong passion of mine is Pokemon. I wanted to talk with Ian because I wanted to know what it was like to actually be the very best. What was it like then, and what is it like now? So I asked him first about how it all started. Well, I was always never that interested in the single-player RPG aspect of it because I had never really been into RPGs. I don't really find them that entertaining but what sets pokemon apart i think in terms of rpgs is the the multiplayer aspect so when i went to school after i got the game everybody was battling each other and trading each other and i found that really amazing because it connected the groups of people who i had never seen connect in middle school like all the clicks and everything were playing each other and battling each other and trading each other and i had never seen anything like that and i wanted to participate in that and and that's what drew me to the game was the interactive nature of it. So you can go home, train your Pokemon, but and then you go to school and you can battle each other. And that was pretty unique for video games at that time. Now it's all wireless. You can battle anybody in the world. But back then, um, you had to have a physical link cable that linked the two Game Boys up. And, you know, you had to be there at the same time and you couldn't be more than, a, obviously, the length of the cable but you would just be able, you would be able to battle in the classroom or at lunchtime or at recess. And obviously, unfortunately, that became a problem. And, uh, you know, the middle school eventually banned Pokemon. And uh, my mom, actually, to her credit, she, she spoke with the principal, and she eventually got them to, to rescind that ban, and they just limited it to recess and, and lunchtime because she had, you know, she... My mom, too, had noticed how it was bringing clicks together, and it was, it was really actually a good thing. But in the year 2000, Pokemon changed. 
It moved from Game Boy to Nintendo 64 with a game called Pokemon Stadium. Yeah, I can't remember ever being excited for any game more than Pokemon Stadium because it, you know, it took these little 8-bit characters or whatever on this little screen and it transformed them into Nintendo 64 world, which is uh, was at the time very impressive 3D modeling and and sound better sounds and everything and it was I was really excited for that. In Pokemon Stadium, there was no real RPG aspect to speak of. It was all about battling, Ian's favorite part of Pokemon. And that is what drew him online. After 2000, they uh, released the Pokemon Battle Simulator online, which let you program your teams just on the computer. You just selected the moves and selected the Pokemon instead of having to train them up in the game. Suddenly, Ian didn't have to plug his Game Boy into a friend's Game Boy to play with other people. He could play with anyone from all over the world. These simulators allowed Ian to hone his skills, experiment with different teams, and learn from more experienced players. Well, this is kind of where the point where I took it to the next level. Like, of course, in every middle school fad trend or whatever, I mean, it, everybody plays it, and then after a while it just you know, fades out when the next thing comes in. But I never really got over it. Like, I, I used the internet, which was booming at the time. I had got my own little iMac, and I had finally I had got convinced my parents to get internet access in my room, which was like a big deal at that time. Um, so, you know, with my dial-up internet and my iMac, I was able to reach out to the online Pokemon forums and community and chat rooms and... And that's how I learned about, um, like, all the tournaments that were going on locally. Once Ian found out about the tournaments, he convinced his parents to take him. There were a few local tournaments scattered around nearby malls, but the bigger tournaments weren't so easy to get to. Unfortunately, though, the national tournament that I won started out as four, just, just four regional tournaments. Um, there was one in New York. There was one in Dallas. There was one in... California, and then there was one in Seattle where Nintendo was based. So, obviously, none of those are really close to where I live in Pennsylvania. So I, I begged and begged, and my parents drove me out to Long Island, which is almost a three-hour drive from here, because they knew I was serious about it. So they knew I had a chance to win it. So I, I guess, like, when you go to the Long Island tournament, like, what does that look like? Where, where is it? Like, what, are, what kind of building are you walking into, and like, what does it look like in there? No, it was a mall again, but they had it in the trading card game store that was pretty big. It was over 100 people, and they had rounds, and, and they just sat across from each other and played on the Game Boys at that time because there were too many people to for everybody to play on the stadium. And that was actually a big deal because the Game Boy game is substantially different than the stadium game. There's a lot of changes that they made. So you had to make sure that your team was, your Pokemon team was appropriate for the Game Boy game. For people that don't know about Pokemon at all, like, you know, there are different element, element, elements? Elemental types, Um, just types, basically, there's, geez, I think 17 or 18 now, don't ask me to name them off the top of my head, Um, I mean, I probably could, but, um, uh, yeah, but that's the most fundamental aspect of Pokemon, that's what they teach you day one, is that certain types are super effective against other types and certain types are not very effective. And some of them are obvious, like they make sense. Like even a six-year-old could understand that fire types burn grass types and water types put out fire. And this is my favorite part about Pokemon is, is you have to build a team that can cover all of the threats that they could possibly use. You know, if your team of six Pokemon has a weakness to a certain Pokemon like Gyarados, who's been around for 18 years, then you're going to have a problem. You need to know how to cover Gyarados, who's a water and flying type, and he tends to use really powerful physical water moves and, and, and Earthquake, which is a ground move, and you have to know how to stop that because he can set up its stats with Dragon Dance, which raises its attack and speed, and you have to know how to stop that. And that's my favorite part of the, the game. So out of the 100 people that showed up to the regional tournament in Long Island, Ian won. And from there... He went to the Nationals. So they had the National Tournaments, which was in Seattle, where Nintendo is headquartered, essentially. And uh, they had that National Tournament, which was only four people because they had the winner of all the, each of the four regional tournaments. 
And those battles were in Pokemon Stadium because there were only four people. They didn't need to set up dozens of Nintendo 64s. So that, again, changed my team because Pokemon Stadium has different game mechanics than the Game Boy game. Did they, did they do that in a mall as well? Yeah, they did it in a mall. Um, they didn't have to because, you know, there were only four people that could have done it in a Nintendo's office or something. But they wanted to make it so public so people could watch. And I was only 13 at the time, and it made me really, really, really nervous. Like, I couldn't eat anything that morning, and it took me, like, it was really embarrassing because I was so nervous that it took me, like, 15 minutes to, like, choose my Pokemon when they were ready to battle. So I know uh, first round I battled the winner of the uh, Texas Regional, and I, I, I beat him. Um... And then I beat the winner of the uh, California tournament. And then they crowned me national champion. You can hear it, right? Ian downplays the U.S. championships because he feels like there should have been more regional tournaments and more competitors. But it was Nintendo's first ever national Pokemon tournament, and Ian won. You might think that becoming the United States champion of one of the world's most popular games would have made him middle school royalty. But Ian says not that many people even knew about it. I mean, unfortunately, Pokemon was just a passing fad, and I think at that point, nobody really, nobody really played it or paid attention anymore. So when I went to Seattle, because I wasn't missing school, it was just like a weekend trip to Seattle, and nobody really knew about it at that point. So I don't remember having very many friends in middle school who still played. Um, I was talking about it with everybody online, on the online communities. It wasn't until I won the national championships in Seattle that, you know, and I had to miss a week of school to go to Australia that that, that became a bigger deal. I asked Ian if he felt like he was living two parallel lives, one as the shy middle school math whiz and one as a national Pokemon celebrity. Yeah, and I think that was to my benefit, actually, because, you know, school was school and I had to focus on schoolwork and academics and I was able to do that. And then when I got home, I play Pokemon and, and chatted with my online community friends. So I think it was actually helpful to keep everything separate. Um, it probably would have been better for my social life if if I had, like, in real life friends who played Pokemon with me, but it would have been detrimental to my academics. In September of 2000, Nintendo flew Ian and his father to Sydney, Australia for the Pokemon World Championships. They built this thing in a convention center or a university center called Pokemon Park, I think, that was supposed to be alongside the 2000 Sydney Olympics um, because they were trying to show that, like, video games are competitive too, just like the Olympics, and they wanted to make this cute little side program where people would be able to battle Pokemon alongside the Olympics, which were happening in Sydney at that time. I was so jet-lagged, and I couldn't... I can't remember much of anything because I was so jet-lagged. It was, you know, a six-hour flight to San Francisco from Philadelphia, and then an 18... 18-hour flight, I think, 16 hours from San Francisco to Sydney. And Nintendo paid for everything. Um, they paid for the flight. They paid for the hotel. They paid for transportation. They picked me up in an airport in a limo. It was amazing. They paid for our dinners. They took us on a great jet boat thing <laughs> across Sydney Harbor, you know, with the Opera House. And they took us to beach volleyball, the Olympic game. And that was amazing. That, so I could say that, I, was that I've seen an Olympic sport in practice. The tournament itself was people from like a dozen countries, Belgium, Netherlands, England, Germany, France, Spain. Surprisingly, and this is a very big deal that people don't know this, that the Asian community was not a part of the world tournament. There was no Japan. There was no China, Korea. There was Because at the time, the games weren't compatible. The Game Boy from the West wasn't compatible with the Game Boy from the, the Eastern countries, which is unfortunate because you can't really call yourself a world champion if you haven't beaten the Japan at their own game. So each each day in the competition, what happens? What does that look like? So you hand over your game, you do a check for like hacks and illegal stuff, and then they give you your game when you get there at the tournament. And uh, you battle your opponent on the stage. You know, the, the eSports circuit now, you know, these are people that play in front of other people all the time. But like back then, you know, you played a few tournaments, but mostly you're kind of walking out of your bedroom onto a stage full of people. Like what is, what is that? Does that it, feel like? it was very nerve wracking. Yeah. And again, I was the youngest person there. So I was just, I was completely jet lagged. I was like, 
at least three years younger than everybody else. Everyone else was like 16, 17, 18, and, and it, was, it was very surreal, very surreal. In the first round of the tournament, every player plays every other player. And with players from 12 different countries, that first round was long and arduous. But one by one, Ian beat everyone. He was undefeated. In the second round, the four best players play each other in single elimination matches to get to the final two. This round didn't go as well. Unfortunately, I came in fourth in that second round. I think because everybody was had like I had like a target on my back and I wasn't really prepared to like counter team these people. Yeah, and I guess when you say you had a target on your back, is that because of your age, you think, or or from because of where you were from? I think it's just because I was undefeated in in the first round. They knew that that I had beaten everybody and they all wanted to get back at me. The final two was my friend Darren from England, who I had known forever from the online community. And he won, he beat the German with Chansey, who was my favorite Pokemon at the time. And it was great because Darren was my best friend and um, he won using my favorite Pokemon. I was so, I was really happy. Looking at it one way, Ian lost in the world championships. But looking at it another way, Ian was the fourth best person in the world at Pokemon. But either way, none of that seems to matter to Ian. What mattered most was getting to meet his best friend in person for the first time. Had you met him in real life before Sydney? No. No, we were just online friends from the online communities, and I met him in Sydney, and it was great. I mean, that's a whole other part of Pokemon, is that most of my closest friends these days are from Pokemon, that I've known for the past 18 years and I mean I've learned Portuguese just because I've met so many Brazilian players for example I went to Brazil a couple of times and and it's great it's a great way to meet people around the world so if you want to go visit some foreign country you probably have friends there because you know people from all over the world you know like I go to England a lot because a lot of my family lives there. So when I tell them, oh, I'm going to be in England in a couple months, do you want to hang out? And, you know, that's when it becomes a real-life friendship as opposed to just some person on, online. I, I just, I love knowing people around the world. I remember the first person I ever met online in real life, it was very awkward. Like, I didn't know what they looked like. Because, you know, we're talking about 2000, 2001, when there wasn't stuff like Facebook and Instagram where you'd, like, basically know everything about their life even before you've met them. But nowadays, it's uh, if you go meet somebody in person that you've known online, it's really not that big of a deal because you already are friends with them on Facebook and Instagram and you know everything about them. And in many cases, I know their whole family. I'm friends with their whole families on Facebook and it's really not much of a transition at all. In terms of how it compares with real friends who've always been real life, I don't, I don't think it's that much different. I mean, a lot of my real life friends have just started through online. I, I think that's one of the things that has become a reality in these days that online friendships are just as valid as real life friendships. In 2017, so many of our relationships are happening online. Whether they begin online, meeting partners on internet dating sites, or whether they continue on Facebook after good friends move away, or whether they exist online completely, it's become common for all kinds of relationships to bud, develop, and thrive on the internet. But even so, there's still a stigma about them that's hard to shake. My whole life my parents have criticized me because I don't have enough real life friends. All of my friends are online. And I get just as much emotional reciprocity from them than I would a real life friend, but you know, I can kind of agree with them that what do you do on a Friday night? 
if you want to go outside and, and, and go to the bar or go to the movies, you're going to do that alone? For a long time, I was perfectly fine going to the movies alone. And then, at a certain age, I'm like, why am I doing this? You know, I see everybody going with people, and, I, and then I made an effort to get friends who were just in real life, who I could go to the movies with. Because I like to be able to discuss it afterwards. So I definitely think that there's... I have to agree with my parents that there's a place for real-life friendships that are exclusively real-life. I don't think that anybody should be without real-life friends. But that's not to diminish the importance of online friends. There needs to be a balance like everything else in this world. Nintendo didn't have another Pokemon tournament for six or seven years, Ian says, but he still kept playing. Pokemon has always been a part of my life, and it's never not going to be a part of my life. So every time that they come out with a new game, which is almost every year now, every year or two, I just play it nonstop until I beat it. And just this morning, I reached the Elite Four in the new Ultra Sun and Moon game that just came out last month. And I have to, I have to beat that. Why do you have to finish it? Because I have to know what's happening in this in this franchise. I have to keep up with it. And the online simulators where he made some of his best friends? Ian still hangs out there, too, from time to time. I still like battling friends in, in online simula simulators and in, on the Nintendo DS. But I don't play it very seriously anymore. What I do now, my hobby, is to use, use teams that Ash Ketchum from the TV show have used. Because it's, it's actually a decent team if you train them up properly, so... And it's just for fun, because then people get a kick out of it, and they say, hey, that's Ash Ketchum's team. I asked Ian if he's still friends with Darren, his best friend from the Sydney tournament. And he said no, that they drifted apart in college. That aside from battling in Sydney and one trip to London, their relationship was almost exclusively online, and at some point, Darren moved his life offline, and the two fell out of touch. But because of Pokemon, Ian has traveled all over the world to meet in person the friends he's made online. England, France, Brazil, and a lot of times, because I live in New York, a lot of times people come visit me, people from Chile and, and Brazil again. Of course, Pokemon is still a massive phenomenon all over the world. New games are coming out constantly. Pokemon Go came out in 2016, Pokemon Ultra Sun and Moon came out this past fall, I asked Ian if, as the U.S. champion of Nintendo's first ever Pokemon tournament, if he feels any sense of ownership over the franchise. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, it's it's a it's a sense of pride of mine, like OG. Like, come on, red, blue, yellow. I mean, everybody loves that game, loved it. So it's like, yeah, I I have a sense of pride. I try to downplay the actual tournament. Because as I said, it wasn't truly a world tournament. It excluded Japan, and the the, the U.S. tournament was wasn't very robust because it was Nintendo's first tournament. But what, what's more important to me it was the experience of um, building a very robust network of online friends. Almost anywhere in the world, if I go there, I can hang out with somebody because of this. And, and that, to me, is the most important part: is is having friends around the world because. I would like to be able to consider myself like a worldly person, like conscious of different cultures. And that's what I, probably the most valuable part that I've gotten out of this is to be able to know people from all over the world. I mean, that's so invaluable, is to be able to get outside of your little corner of the world and just know people in Europe and South America and, and Asia. And that's, that's my favorite part of this whole Pokemon journey that I've been on for the past 18 years. This episode of Character Creator was produced by me and my parents' dog, Molly, who isn't barking much these days, but has been very supportive as I've put this episode together. I want to thank Daisy Charles. I don't really have anything for you to plug about me because I don't have uh, don't have this published yet. But if any of your listeners have any suggestions or would like to hear more, I'd love to hear what they think or how they think I could get this 
get this out there. If you do, then um, reach out to, to Brian through the podcast and, uh, and he'll let me know what you think. Thank you. Omari Akio. I just started a board game design company with my brother. Um, and our company is lovingly called Board Game Brothers. Um, and so our game that we're developing is called Rap Gods. You can find us, we're on Instagram um, under the name of the company Board Game Brothers. Um, but I'm everywhere. Oh, Omari Akio, you can find me pretty easily too. And Ian Garvey. If you want to play Pokemon competitively, Smogon is the place to go. It's smogon.com, S M. O-G-O-N.com. It's um, the German name for one of the Pokemon coughing. I don't know how they came up with that. If they want to play you, can they like look you up by screen names? Yeah, uh, Eevee Trainer is the name I've used for the past 18 years. It's really funny. It's just Eevee Trainer, one word, no space. Eevee is E-E-V-E-E. It's one of the Pokemon. I also want to thank my parents, Bob and Gabrielle Dorsum, and Sam Perry. Music for the show is by Names for Sounds. You can find more music at namesforsounds.com. If you like the show, please consider donating. Visit patreon.com to contribute and get some cool rewards in return. If you don't have any money, that's okay. Please consider rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. It only takes a second. You can do it right now on your phone, and it goes a long way toward getting the show heard. New episodes of Character Creator go up on the first Monday of each month, but there's lots of bonus content, side quests, and let's plays. Keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or at our website, charactercreatorpodcast.com, where you can find links to all of the references made in this episode. Once again, that's charactercreatorpodcast.com. 